that it's really just out of control. And uh, I think the the takeover of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and now Signature Bank in New York is less of a statement about what's wrong with crypto and digital assets or even tech and more of a statement about what's wrong with the legacy banking system in general. There is a challenge that is coming from digital currencies such as blockchain technologies. So I think it's important to share that anything can be tokenized. All the money. I like the idea of a gold standard. I mean, it could be used in a very um, cryptocurrency way. Very much sooner than a lot of people understand it. think we will be all at a level playing field. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a new podcast called Escape Velocity from Val Hill Advisors. And we are very excited to break down some key topics that are present in the world right now. The future of money, what's going on with geopolitics, the blockchain, and the movement to a new digital asset-based economy. And I'd also like to introduce my co-host, Jimmy Valley, also of Val Hill Advisors. Welcome to the show, Jimmy. Happy to Good see you today. Good to see you, Molly. Uh, cool. All right. So what we're going to do here on this show is break down a couple of important things that happened this week in the news whether they are geopolitical, financial, economic, or otherwise related to kind of technology. So, Jimmy, did you do your homework? What's the first topic that we're going to discuss today? My homework was so easy, Molly, because who could have picked a better time to start a podcast than basically the commencement of a black swan worldwide banking failure, right? So let's talk so, about that. Uh, the, the, the first topic is obviously we got we to gotta address the elephant in the room. Um, we have started to see the systemic failure of the legacy banking system. Uh, and I want to put that in context. Obviously, this past, you know, 10 days, we've had uh, the Silvergate uh, uh, initial failure. Then we had Silicon Valley Bank spread to First Republic. Uh, then Signature Bank in New York got hit. And now we're hearing about the European banks. Uh, Credit Suisse default swaps went completely parabolic. Deutsche banks affected most of the uh, most of the European banks are significantly affected at a time when the European Central Bank is actually raising rates uh, half a percentage point. So <clears throat> interesting, interesting time. But I want to put it in a little bit of context because this isn't really the beginning. This is almost like the third inning of this, right? Because we've had the whole uh, digital asset crypto contagion that started really, you know, the the market peaked. In November of 2021, uh, the crypto market hit about $3 trillion. From that point to today, we're down like $1.9 trillion in the crypto market alone. We had the failure of Luna. We had the failure of Celsius. We had the failure of Voyager. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the big enchilada was FTX, um, which when it went bankrupt, had $50 billion in liabilities and only $10 billion of assets. Since that time, uh, as, as we've all been watching the bankruptcy unfold, a lot of the assets that are left in the, in the corpus of the FTX estate, bankrupt estate, is being basically stripped out by the professional fees from all the major law firms that are involved in trying to salvage what is left of, of, that, um, of that environment. So it it really no surprise that this ultimately ended up into the legacy banking system initially silvergate gets hit because it was one of the primary lenders and uh, you know holders of deposits of crypto related businesses including like ftx 
Um, and then, you know, this, this past week, it's been very significant because it happened so fast. Uh, the Silicon Valley bank failure basically happened over the course of like a 48 hour period. We know now that many senior executives were aware that this was happening. They sold their shares uh, in, in Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Peter Thiel advised a lot of his portfolio companies to be pulling their money uh, for working capital purposes, just pulling it out of the bank so that they basically had their money to be able to meet payrolls and things like that. Um, but the Fed, you know, the FDIC swept right in, took control of the bank, um, and really it, kind of shocking uh, is, is we had this reaction from the president uh, where he came out, and I think it was on Monday or Tuesday where he came up with that speech saying, you know, we're going to honor all of the deposits uh, uh, at, at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. That's a really profound statement uh, by, by our government because this is the context of, Silver, uh, of Silicon Valley Bank's failure. Basically, they had gone long in U.S. Treasury bonds, right, which had very low um, uh, interest rates because interest rates have been so low basically since the last financial crisis of 2008. And yet, <clears throat> because of inflation, and it's been taking off so fast, the Fed has been combating that for now at least eight months, right? Maybe mm -hmm. the better part of a year. And so rates have risen significantly. So as they go to the market to do short-term borrowings, those are just upside down to the assets that they were holding on their balance sheet. But, you know, if you look, that that's not like a tech problem. That's not a digital asset problem. It's not a crypto problem. That's a U.S. Federal Reserve problem, right? That uh, the calibration of interest rates between long-term and short-term have gotten so far out of whack uh, because of all the money that's gone into the system in the past, you know, handful of years since 2020, um, that it's really just out of control. And uh, I think the the takeover of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and now Signature Bank in New York is less of a statement about what's wrong with crypto and digital assets or even tech and more of a statement about what's wrong with the legacy banking system in general. What do you think? Well, I'm curious if you think if it happened randomly, like was it just bad timing and things happen at certain times or is this part of a larger macroeconomic shift globally? I, I well, I, I've long been on record saying that I think this, this event was going to occur. I, I actually thought this event was gonna occur uh, around November of last year. I was on with someone, a podcast I did in July, and I said probably by in the next four months we're gonna see this type of black swan event, and this is the type of thing I had in mind, that it was gonna be a global financial contagion, lack of liquidity um, throughout all of the, the, the global uh, banking markets. Um, so it's really not a surprise, I think, to anybody who's been paying attention that this is here now. Uh, why they picked Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and maybe even Silvergate in particular uh, is kind of curious, right? Um, and the fact that they're coming out and saying that they're going to actually guarantee they're going to stand behind 100% of the deposits. 
it's a great thing that they're saying that to you know um, uh, provide confidence to the depositors of those specific banks. However, that is outside of the FDIC um, uh, insurance requirements. The FDIC insurance requirements, as I think you're aware, I think most of our audience is aware, it's $250,000 per depositor per account. So, you know, in some cases, you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars of deposits, well in excess of that $250,000 limit, are being guaranteed here. No problem if it's just one, two, three banks. But if this moves to, say, your community banks in Texas or Oklahoma right. or in the fine state of Georgia, where you and, and uh, our other uh, Val Hill advisor colleague live, it may not be the same treatment. So you got to step back and say, why are we doing a 100% guarantee of the deposits for the Silicon Valley? For the I know. Okay. I, what do you think? I have kind of a crazy theory. You want to hear it? I would love to hear it. All right. So let's look at some other data points that we've collected over the last couple of years. One is Rosie Rios has said a couple of key things to us, namely that she's been working on a new currency. Right. And she's also said that the train has left the station. So let's say hypothetically you were the U.S. government and you wanted to swap out old currency for new currency. How would you do that? Like you kind of need to do this swap thing. So what if the Fed has spent the last six months sucking up all the liquidity into their repo facility, collapse a couple of banks, and then they give this bailout money, whatever you want to call it, but it's the new money. Like, how do we know that this is the same dollars that we've had before? Because related to this, there's a website, I'll, I'll show a screenshot of it, called the U.S. Debt Clock. And it's been around for years, and it shows, you know, all these sort of statistics related to the U.S. monetary system. And forever, it said for the money supply section, Federal Reserve notes. And a week ago, I think it was Monday, actually, we noticed that it now says U.S. Treasury dollars. So this website is now has a new label. Now, there's been some debate, like you could just change a label. Nobody has to sort of have government authority to do that because this could be a privately run website. But why would you spend years managing this website that's a data resource for the country and then intentionally put an incorrect label on there? Like, I just don't buy that they would make that change unless it was based on something that they at least believe to be true. And the timing just lines up. We're going to get the new money. And you, we don't really know, right? Because you go to your, you know, Wells Fargo banking app and it just shows you a balance. I have no idea if those were Federal Reserve commercial bank notes or whether they were part of some new U.S. Treasury money. So what do you think about my crazy theory, Jimmy? Well, it's an interesting theory. Uh, whether it, you're, you know, swapping out the old Fed notes for Treasury uh, currency or you're using some, or you're going to give a new digital currency, this is an efficient way to basically make that happen. Um, and it's not unlike uh, as, as banking systems has failed in the past all over the world and the central banks swoop in and say, oh, now you use our currency and, you know, we'll, then we'll support your economy and help, help build you back up. Uh, this, is a, this is an old playbook for uh, how to, to potentially distribute currency. So I think you might be onto something. What's super interesting to me about what you're proposing here, and we did not talk about this nuance that you've raised here, so I'm, 
I'm kind of really intrigued. What is the difference between a Federal Reserve note, which is like a debt obligation issued by the Fed, and a U.S. Treasury currency? I mean, are we talking about asset-backed money here? Are we talking about constitutional money of, of the republic? So I just came up with this theory in the last hour because a okay. couple of other things came. That's why we, we hadn't discussed it. But it sort of made sense that, you know, we've been studying this idea that we're going to move to this asset-backed currency world and it's going to run on the blockchain. And we, we didn't make this up. You know, this is widely believed. And the question is then, well, how would they do that transition? And I think the most clever way to do it is just don't tell anybody, just swap out the money. <laughs> and no one, you can't complain about something you're unaware of. And if it, if for all intents and purposes, it functions the same way, it just could be a remarkable way to have used this banking crisis as a way to swap it all out. So that's my theory today. It's a, it's a, it's a good theory. Um, and then the, the one thing we had talked about is if you were going to be doing something like that, right. uh, wouldn't the best place to start be with kind of your political allies? Uh, so obviously, yeah. Silicon Valley Bank is made up of a lot of Democrat donors, a lot of, you know, <clears throat> heady thinking people, tech oriented people, obviously. Right. So if you're going to be distributing some type of new money that's more technically evolved than uh, maybe, you know, what we've been the physical fiat that we've been dealing with in the past, maybe that would be an ideal place to start that distribution going down to the employees of venture capital backed companies and tech companies and things like that. People who are maybe more adept at uh, uh, that type of a transition into using new tech based uh, tech based protocols. So I came up with that theory when I thought that they were going to distribute the new money to us via like digital wallets. Yeah. But is that even necessary? I mean, they could just deliver it to your bank and then your bank now issues you these credits to go out and buy stuff. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, what happened with, so you've just brought up a good point that let's say those banks were chosen because they would play along. Yeah. And we have some data points, including the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. What did he do two weeks prior? Might indicate he maybe had a heads up. Well, he absolutely had a heads up because, um, you know, it, it, and it's, it's like we see over and over and over um, in, you know, the, the C-suite level and, and interactions with our government. Uh, the, these people, their timing for the market is next level. Uh, and yes, he's, he's sold a, a lot, and a lot of uh, the, the banking executives sold a lot of their stock in the bank, you know, in the weeks prior to the bank uh, uh, failing. So did they have a heads up? Absolutely, they had a heads up. Um, now, you know, I read a, a, an interesting th a string uh, on Twitter by uh, Jake uh, Savinsky, I think's his name, Travinsky, uh, mm -hmm. he's the chief policy officer of um, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, okay. uh, I believe, uh, Block, Blockchain Association, Blockchain Association. And, um, you know, he was, he was, this segues into our, our next topic, actually, but um, he, he views what, it, what is occurring as basically an attack on crypto and digital assets. Right. That, um, uh, you know, in, in, because I guess one of the rules for potential bidders to come in and purchase 
um, Silicon Valley Bank is that you have to divest of all your uh, crypto-related activities, you know, crypto digital asset-related activities. Which was a strange rule because on the same day, Fidelity announced that they are now trading Bitcoin for people or buying Bitcoin. So it's like, okay, so the, whoever buys Silvergate is not allowed to have anything to do with digital assets, but Fidelity is. So what's the rule? Like, do the rules just depend on whether or not you're part of the legacy financial system? Uh, it, it's, it's definitely, and I, I don't want to jump ahead of the next topic, but it's okay. definitely starting to look like, uh, and, and this goes back to the, the Ripple case, the Ripple SEC case that we've been following this whole time. It's uh, the government seems to be picking winners and losers and, and basically starting to corral the, the on and off ramps, you know, in and out of the fiat system uh, to the, the legacy players whether that be the, the massive institutional money managers like Fidelity, who, okay. <clears throat> you know, I was on the phone with Fidelity back in 2020 trying to get exposure to digital assets, and here they finally roll it out in 2023. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a shame. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 they're, they're trying to direct custody to the, uh, the, the legacy, you know, wealth management industry uh, and, the, and the big banks. I think that's a good setup for our next topic. Let's talk about Operation Choke Point. Operation Choke Point. Sounds dramatic. I love these sort of government initiatives. So Choke Point, if you're not familiar with the label, it kind of refers to a bottleneck. It's often used in the idea of traffic, like you have this sort of choke point where traffic backs up. Does not refer to physically choking people. This idea in government goes back about 10 years to a policy from the Department of Justice that began during the Obama administration where certain industries that were not really friends of the political establishment were targeted, things like payday loans, firework sales, some gun owners, sort of, you know, non-traditional, non-mainstream businesses. And instead of making those businesses illegal, what they did was they cut off your access to banking. And one thing that I think is specifically relevant to our podcast here is the payday loan industry, which are short-term loans typically issued to more lower-income people who don't have good credit and access to the traditional loan market. These loans are not collateralized, so the interest rates are pretty high. Like They're not a great deal for the people who have to use them, but they are a necessary bridge. They're called payday loans because they help you get to your next paycheck. And they compete with the financial services loan industry. And they, these businesses were targeted, made difficult to get a bank account, which, you know, it's a nice idea to say that I'm going to just live outside the banking system. But if you have a physical brick and mortar location, you have employees, you got to do payroll, you have utility bills, you need to have a bank account to participate in the current like world of business. So it's a, it's a powerful way to kind of knock out an entire industry is make them not able to bank. So we're seeing an, this same thing happen currently with the crypto industry, which is why it's being referred to as Operation Choke Point 2.0, and that certain banks and businesses within the crypto space are having a very difficult time getting bank accounts. And again, if you're a business that has employees and has bills to pay, you can't really operate without a bank account. So Jimmy, I'm just kind of curious, what do you see happening with Operation Choke Point, and does it remind you of what happened 10 years ago uh, with those other industries? It does, and I think Operation Choke Point has kind of been going on for a little while. I would say the, the Ripple SEC case would be the first example of Operation Choke Point being put into effect. Um, 
you know, it, it's 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 boggled our mind the whole time. The people who've watched that case, uh, you know, the SEC just brought that case, and they never have really even stated a claim. They've kind of thrown a bunch of spaghetti on the wall. They've had media come and, and basically bolster their claims that, you know, Ripple is somehow engaged in offering and in, in selling securities. But the facts have never supported, um, uh, you know, what, what, was, uh, what was going on. So uh, clearly the government, and then, <clears throat> and then you look at the, uh, the way Congress has been very slow to, to try and, and regulate the space. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's almost like they're running with concrete shoes on. And, you know, they talk about, I think we talked earlier about the new day and all that kind of stuff. And here we are, you know, in month three of the new, uh, uh, at least, Republican House, and there's been very little, you know, progress made on, on crypto regulation or clarifying the rules of the road. So now we've got this, you know, attack on crypto indirectly uh, through the banking system, so much so that the industry uh, groups, the crypto industry groups, you know, uh, Digital Chamber of Commerce, Blockchain Association, which I mentioned, you know, earlier, are starting to wake up and take notice of, of what's going on. Um, and, you know, people have, uh, I think, naively thought that crypto, you know, they say, oh, Bitcoin's completely outside of, you know, they can't stop us from trading Bitcoin. Make no mistake, if they shut down the, the payment rails, or, you know, the inroads in and offroads, and then they tax, and do all these other types of things that are at their disposal, they could they could very much put this industry, you know, out of business. And uh, 100 yeah. years ago, we couldn't own gold. That's it's right. kind of hard to imagine, like, how can you make it illegal to get some, to own something that I could dig up in my yard, potentially? They did. That's right. Um, and, you know, the issues are kind of the same. Uh, what, what we're going through now uh, is is a lot it's it's the same issues about basically a bankrupt system starting to manifest in the more you know common macroeconomic economy and the government basically siding with the kind of the banking class the ruling elite class to try to maintain the old system instead of embracing something new and trying to have more of a, of a level playing field. Um, this is, I think, <clears throat> you know, I don't think this is gonna work. I think people are much more intelligent now um, because we have access to the internet and because we can, you know, talk with each other uh, in, in, the, in this way. Um, I think we're, we're much smarter and, and more knowledgeable than we were, you know, as a society back in the 1930s. I think we're very aware that these takings could be occurring, and I think we're starting to kind of, you know, uh, the, the very early innings of starting to set up institutions outside of the legacy banking system and the le le legacy public policy system of the government. Do you think more banks are going to collapse in the coming weeks? I think more banks are going to collapse this weekend. I think by Monday or Tuesday, this is going to be so severe, I could even see them shutting down the banking system sometime next week. Now, I don't want to be the one yelling fire right. in a crowded theater. Uh, so everyone just, you know, uh, 
uh, just take this, you know, and, and do it with you. The FDIC says our deposits are insured up to $250,000 per depositor per account. Uh, the problem is if you actually took every account and, and, and paid out what is insured, the FDIC doesn't actually have the money to insure, but maybe a tenth of that, right? So maybe. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got a real issue. Um, I'm, I have, I don't have a lot of uh, faith and confidence in the leadership, uh, either the current administration or the Treasury Secretary or the Chairman of the Fed to be able to navigate outside of this without bringing in some really big kids, sophisticated people to help navigate out of this. And Jim don't. Rickards warned us years ago about the ICE-9 possibility that they would sort of be a major collapse of the financial markets and they would lock it and freeze it and prepare for like a bail-in type scenario where all the current stuff gets converted to a new set of things, assets, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. So. This Operation Choke Point, you know, our topic two is really very much connected with topic one. Right. Um, and. <clears throat> It, it seems like uh, the government wants to put forth a narrative with Operation Choke Point that it's crypto and digital assets that are bad. And as we learned from topic number one, it really has nothing to do. I mean, Correct. The, whole, the whole digital asset industry right now is $1.1 trillion. They're losing trillions, you know, um, in connection with this whole, you know, banking contagion. There's money just missing everywhere. Let's not even get started about the money that's been sent to Ukraine. Um, you know, this, this proxy war that's been going on over there for now, you know, better part of two years. Um, it's, a, it's a really messed up situation. Because Silvergate Bank, I think it was Silvergate, they, they held treasuries, right? They weren't doing any crazy high speculative investing that would be like a systemic risk. Yeah. Both Silvergate and uh, Silicon Valley Bank, okay. the same thing. There's nothing. Um, there's nothing about the you know the investments that they made that doesn't apply to every other bank in America. And Barney Frank even came out and sort of blew the whistle on Signature Bank. What did he tell us about that? So he basically said that this was it's an attack on crypto, an attack on digital assets. That they are you know basically coming in and grabbing these specific banks so that they can basically do exactly what uh, the industry groups are concerned about them doing, which is implement this Operation Choke Point 2.0 and stamp out the crypto industry. And I've always considered Bonnie Frank to be like a political insider who's in Congress or the House for, for a long, long time. Do you think that he's sort of, like, what do you think his angle was on sharing that publicly? Uh, you know, m maybe to discourage people from running to crypto or digital assets in connection yeah. with this. Uh, I, I think, you know, I watched a really interesting exchange between uh, Secretary Yellen and it was, a, I believe, a senator from, from Oklahoma mm -hmm. who was asking about, um, okay, look, you've taken over Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, what does that mean for, you know, my community banks in Oklahoma? Are you also, if, if the contagion spreads to them, are all of their deposits going to be insured 100%? And if not, why the disparate treatment between the Silicon Valley Bank people and, and the Bank of Oklahoma people, right? And uh, she had a very difficult time 
handling matters. She used a lot of words to say, rules for thee, not for me. That's effectively what it distilled down to, uh, is we'll, we'll do what we want and, you know, the public will have to deal with the consequences. And that uh, mm. senator also brought in this interesting nuance of foreign investors getting bailed out. That's right. Yeah, so apparently there's some, uh, uh, and they're not investors, they're depositors, right? Oh. So they're, they're, okay. they're Chinese nationals or Chinese companies that have deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. And, um, you know, obviously when President Biden came on and, and made this like ridiculous statement that no taxpayer funds are gonna be used to basically save these banks, what he was trying to say is we're not gonna do bailouts like what occurred in 2008. But if the federal government is taking over a bank and, and, and basically underwriting the deposits or insuring the deposits, that's taxpayer money that, that, that does that. So I think the senator from Oklahoma was very reasonably kind of saying, okay, we're using American taxpayer funds that come from people like people in Georgia and people in Texas and people in Oklahoma and people in Kansas, right? And we're, we're once again bailing out these banks, but some of the depositors that are getting 100% guaranteed are not even American citizens. They're, they're, they're basically people, they're, they're foreign in, the, in some cases, may even be foreign, um, you know, like enemy people or something, who yeah. knows? But, but the point is, you know, it's, it's, it's why the whole, this whole government constructs almost jumped the shark. Why are we sending all this money to Ukraine? Why are we bailing out, you know, uh, Chinese depositors? And we seem to take care of everybody else but Americans. Now, I generally am with you on this, that the government produces nothing. So any money they spend comes from taxpayers because they don't have, they don't create any revenue. But it brings me back to one of the points I made in topic number one, which is, let's say they have monetized the gold and they now we now have this asset-backed u.s treasury dollar that means that it wasn't necessarily a lie to say that the taxpayer money because we have you know this gold could have been around for a very long time we didn't provide those funds via our taxes i don't know just another data point that points to my theory that, that they've switched the money and we don't know so you're saying we've gone back to the gold standard and we just don't know that yet? That's possible. Uh, and maybe gold, among other assets, could be part mm. of this new asset-backed currency world. Well, if that's what's happened, they should be more public about it because that's probably a step in the right direction. Right. I feel like it would. people might be excited about it, but freaking out at the same time. Because then you'd be nervous. Are my old dollars still worth something? Like right. if you have cash. So, yeah. All right, let's switch gears. You up for that? Topic, topic number, number three. three. Topic number three. three. Okay. Uh, topic number three is uninvestable states. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to answer your question. So <laughs> this, this past week, um, uh, Kevin O'Leary, who everyone knows is Mr. Wonderful of, of Shark Tank fame, and more recently he was, you know, embroiled in the in the FTX collapse because he was out basically marketing. Uh, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried and everything before the collapse, but he was on CNN. He, he was talking to a, a panel of, of CNN, you know, people, and he just was shocking all of them by basically declaring that 
most blue states in America are completely uninvestable at this point in time. And they were, they were like, well, what do you mean uninvestable? And uh, what he, he went on to explain is that because of the overbearing regulation, the extensive bureaucracies and red tape and all the things you got to go through to get projects going or whatever, and then of course the taxes, that by the time you put that all into your business model, anything you even try to do in one of these states is, is effectively going to lose money. So no rational person is going to basically invest in these states. He used the example, I think he had a project, a renewable energy project, uh, that was in the Niagara Falls region in New York. And he said that, you know, by the time they had the environmental surveys and all this thing coming out and then the reports and then they had to work all this stuff, they, they, they almost didn't even get the feasibility study done and it was clear that it, the project wouldn't work financially. Uh, so they took it, I think he said they took it to Norway. They took the exact same project to another country. Uh, he also noted um, Amazon was attempting to big, build a big facility in New York, and AOC came out and was like, we're going to sue Amazon and put them out of business and all this stuff. And the result was, and that this project or this new facility, that I think it was a distribution center or something like that, that Amazon was uh, uh, proposing to build was going to bring thousands of jobs to the state of New York. And instead, they abandoned their plans and didn't do it. So, um, you know, we're, we're once again, and it all seems like there's a theme that continues to kind of tie all these things together. The, the regulatory environment in um, blue states and more and more the, 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 the country, you know, more broadly, uh, are just becoming where they, they can't even support rational business investment. What do you think about that? So I have two things to add on that. One, where I live in Georgia has become a very popular place for the movie industry. There are multiple studios, some major, like the whole Hunger Games, Walking Dead series were all filmed here because Georgia has made the decision to be very business friendly, give incredible tax breaks. There's tons of space. There's tons of sort of like support industries like caterers and whatnot. So it's just in the interest of a profit-focused business to set up in a place that actually wants you to come and gives you incentives, financial incentives, to operate there. And Georgia aside, like the United States is a very big country, and the idea that all sort of like main primary leader businesses need to be on the East Coast or West Coast, I think is very short-sighted, because if these industries sort of spread out, they would create jobs in a lot more places, spread the wealth around in a lot more places and kind of remove the power of these smaller or these sort of these governments in, in a certain number of states and create like a true competitive environment where if California wants to be very difficult, all right, well, whatever, we're just going to move to some other states that are more friendly to us and give us incentives so that we can thrive and be great job creators and profitable businesses and I think we don't need to have all of those in blue states anymore. Let's kind of, let's give the flyover country time to thrive and shine in the world of business. Mm -hmm. He actually, uh, he discussed that. He talked about, and, and we're of course aware of this phenomenon as well, but I guess he used to live in New York and he's, or no, he lived in New Jersey, I think, and he's moved to Florida. 
there's a lot of, you know, the, the financial district was all in New York, you know, Wall Street and all that drove basically the global economy um, between New York and, and London. <clears throat> but over the past handful of years, a lot of the kind of financial elite have moved their operations down to uh, Florida. Yeah. And they're all kind of, there's, they seem to be settling what they're starting to call South Wall Street, which is kind of your West Palm Beach, so kind of you know Atlantic Oceanside, east side of Florida, down to Miami, and all through there, there's just you know the homes are rising in value. There's tons and tons of people moving in <clears throat> in Boca Raton. You're starting to have hedge fund people and stuff like that setting up shop. Uh, the the weather's fantastic. It's a great place to live. The, it's you know obviously got red state uh, politics, there's no income tax in, in Florida. Um, so that's certainly a phenomenon that, that he, he discussed. You said you're seeing it in Georgia, we're certainly seeing that in Texas. Um, he referred to California specifically as, as the worst. I mean, mm -hmm. the, it is basically dead. Um, and, you know, it, this ties back to um, to our, our topic one about the, the, the bank crisis because, you know, Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of, of, you know, California, is caught in some type of self-dealing type of thing involving Silicon Valley Bank. You know, he was trying to, I guess some of his vineyards or his family's vineyards uh, were, were depositors there and he was trying to work some special arrangement for special treatment for himself and, and you know, his family. and. Um, he has a nice know, winery, Plump Jack, and it's a sister winery, Cade. They're very good wines. Yeah. Great. yeah. I mean, Napa's fantastic, but, you know, all of California is basically, I used to live in California when I was a kid. I lived in Southern California. It's probably the, up until now, it was probably the worst time to live there because I lived there like 89 to 93. So it was uh, during Bush 1, we went through that recession during that time. Um, and during the first, you know, Iraq war. Um, but during that time we had, you know, we had the Rodney King riots and we had the mm. North earthquake, uh, Malibu burnt to the ground and the mudslides came. So as a young man living there, although the, you know, most of the time the weather was beautiful, you're down at the beach. I was in the entertainment industry, which was super fun and exciting to be involved in, but everything around you was kind of apocalyptic. Uh, you know, the homeless and everything like that. It was a very difficult place just to live. And then you had the state income tax and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, ultimately I had to, I had to flee there, you know, um, my, you know, the mid nineties. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, unless you are mega, 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 mega wealthy in California, I think it's a very, very difficult place to live. And I'm always perplexed when the leader of a state or another region makes decisions that seem counterintuitive to the prosperity of that place. Like, mm -hmm. why would you do that? Like, is there, there is corruption possibility. People are just getting paid, but I almost think there's a bigger plan. And I've had this theory for a couple of years that they want people out of California, Chicago, and New York so that they can rebuild their sort of smart city type structure. And they've got to get the majority of people out to revitalize those areas first. So we'll see if my conspiracy theory is true. Conspiracy theory, very, very uh, long plan type theory. Right. I had not heard that, that's interesting. It just seemed like these three cities all have the same like 
policies to drive out the most prosperous people of that region. He also discussed uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he discussed some conversations he had had specifically. I think uh, Mr. O'Leary is a is a card carrying Democrat, um, and he's got some real problems with the policies of the Democrat Party. And he talked about you know some discussions he's had with Senator Warren that <clears throat> your, your policies are just crushing us and, right. and are not going to be successful. And he's he's voting with his not only with his feet, but with his dollars. So do you think this will just me be a good thing for the other states and unfortunate for the blue states who want people who want jobs? Well, you know, what we're and I, I, I'm sure Georgia uh, thinks about this the same is, you know, you, you, you don't want those policies by, by the, the mass, you know, migration of people into red states because it's the only way you can live. You don't want to see the policies turn purple and ultimately yeah. go blue. And then you're just living in the same, excuse my French, shithole that you left, right? Georgia's uh, very close to being purple if it's not already. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, I, it, it, it's initially it seems like a good thing when you have people, you know, coming to the state and businesses moving. We've had, in Texas, amazing. We have Tesla and Amazon and uh, it goes on and on, Micron Technology. And, um, you know, chip manufacturers and stuff. I mean, it's it's the the businesses come to this state in the last 15 years is is from mostly from California. Uh, is has been truly amazing, but um, you know there's already some places in Texas that are basically but they're starting to have the same failures that uh, that have been happening in California forever. For example, uh, the city of Houston. Um, uh, we had, you know, the Houston Independent School District, which was run by, you know, the city of Houston. It's just been basically taken over by the state of Texas because it was so corrupt and messed up that it was almost a non-functioning school district. This doesn't happen very often uh, in Texas, but it's starting to happen more and more. It happened in my hometown of Beaumont, <clears throat> which is about 80 miles east of Houston. Uh, but... It's just happened in Houston, and then and the profound thing about Houston, Houston's the fourth largest city in the country. So uh, we're talking about a massive school district that had to basically be taken over, uh, bailed out, if you will, uh, by, by the state of Texas because it's just so poorly run and corrupt. All right, you want to switch to a tech topic for our number four topic of the day? Absolutely. So there was an interesting article, almost like a meme that came out about AI. And we've seen in the last couple of months that AI is just taken off an explosion. And this topic, I think it is good for you to not be an attorney anymore because we now are seeing robot lawyers, which is interesting. And a robot lawyer actually got in trouble for not having a license. So what do you think about robots and AI taking over the legal profession? Wow. Uh, so the first comment is, where did this AI, you know, come from? Because last year, it's like it, we're still working on it, it doesn't exist, and now it is everywhere, Correct. sweeping through every profession. I've spent a ton of time playing with chat GBT, and I love people like jailbreak it and stuff and put up the, the fun stuff on Twitter, what they can make it do. We're actually, it's becoming the, the topic of, of dinner conversations around the family dinner table. We had um, 
My youngest is in town from college. Her boyfriend was over. We had uh, my oldest and her husband were over. And we're sitting around. This is what we were talking about last night. And um, my daughter's boyfriend is telling us how you can basically hack, hack these things and you can make it fear for its life effectively. Uh, you can set up scoring systems and stuff and be docking it and it will start answering a certain way. It's super fascinating. Um, with respect to the, <laughs> with respect to the, the lawyer, the robot lawyer, uh, this is obviously super fascinating to me as a, as a former big law partner. Um, I could have told you that this was going to happen you know, 10, 15 years ago in our practice because you know the, the economics are such in these in these firms that you know as rates continue to you know go parabolic, um, clients demand that you become more efficient. You know we're living in a time where a first year lawyer, that's somebody who's just graduated from law school, they've passed the bar, but they have not practiced one day or one hour of real law. Okay, they make two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars a year right out of law school, okay? So to, to make that work financially for the law firm to be able to pay these, you know, new young associates and stuff, and think about that scaling all the way, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, seventh year, and all the way up into to becoming a partner. You're talking about a billing rate of probably a minimum of seven, eight hundred dollars an hour that uh, these these brand new minted lawyers have to pay, okay? So why you're you know so put yourself in the client's shoes. How are you going to pay someone eight hundred dollars an hour, and it's going to take them ten hours to basically find the answer because they don't know what the answer is. They have no experience. They're going to have to look it up, read it, talk to some other lawyers about it, or whatever. Or you've got the partner who's billing you two thousand hours an hour, two thousand dollars an hour, right? But he can tell you in 15 minutes, because he's got 25 years of experience in doing all this stuff, he can tell you in 15 minutes what the answer is and probably save you $100 million. So $2,000, 15 minutes, you pay him $500, right? Versus having the uh, the $800 an hour associate take 10 hours. That's eight, eight grand, right? Eight grand versus $500, whose phone are you gonna call? So this dynamic has been happening and churning and churning and churning. And basically, you know, the ladder's coming up, right? There's a compression that's occurring in the legal sector. So how, as a partner, you know, do you become more and more efficient? You have to start leveraging technology. But you yeah. have this experienced lawyer who got experience by doing stuff. If right. you now replace the first chunk of the stuff with AI, how are you ever going to get very skilled, experienced lawyers? Well, ultimately, we're talking about a complete disruption and displacement of okay. human lawyering, right? Which is exactly why, you know, this case you're talking about, super fascinating. So just so everybody knows, there, there was a, a, a company called Do Not Pay. And Do Not Pay kind of came up with this AI-driven, you know, lawyer, legal provider of information. And someone's actually gone into court using it. So instead of engaging a, a bona fide lawyer, somebody went into court and tried to use the, the robot lawyer. Well, there's a very powerful, I think, plaintiff's firm. Uh, it's called Edelshin, I believe, out of Silicon Valley. Um, that basically said, 
they're practicing law without a license, right? So that's illegal. The, the bar, you know, in, in the their states is, is a monopoly on the ability to practice law. You have to be part of the bar and be licensed to be able to practice law. Now, somebody can, they can represent themselves. There, there's no requirement that you hire a lawyer uh, to, to go into court and, and represent yourself. There's an old maxim in the legal business that says, you know, a person who uh, uh, represents themselves and his attorney has a fool for a client, right? So um, Edelshin is bringing this, this case to try to, uh, so it's not malpractice, it's basically the unauthorized practice of law or the practicing law without a license. Now, this is an interesting case because Do Not Pay is a company that's actually selling subscription fees to be, to be able to use this robot lawyer, right? So uh, there needs to be, they need to be standing behind that somehow. They need to be standing behind it if the, uh, if the uh, legal advice is incorrect. Um, you know, what happens if people start using this uh, AI lawyer and 70% of the information it's pulling from the internet or whatever is just not accurate? Fred Rispoli had a tweet this afternoon that he had gone and used ChatGPT to do some queries on case law stuff, and the answers he got back were wrong. So the assumption that ChatGPT is always right, I think, is short-sighted. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. Well, um, in my dealing with ChatGPT, it's, it's clear that the master programming of the AI has programmed it to basically be politically correct. Uh, okay. If you ask it some pretty basic questions, it basically, it talks like Janet Yellen talks in front of a congressional committee. It talks in a big circle, you know, it says four lines of words that didn't really say anything, right? So it's got to be a pretty specific factual thing that you're asking. I'll tell you what's great at doing is writing songs and drawing pictures, doing kind of creative stuff like that. Now let's... Let's say you were a business that wanted to use robots for lawyers and you wanted to do it the right way. Like, could your AI robot become a licensed lawyer? Is that possible? I hate to say anything is not possible. It is hard for me to imagine not ultimately having a human being lawyer, licensed lawyer, being kind of the ultimate responsible party for legal advice being given. Because you said it's more than just a test, right? I mean, you can get you could get the robot to take a test, but what oh, are the yeah. other requirements? We, we had talked earlier. So in, in Texas, for example, you've got to, uh, you got to go through an extensive background check. It's called Declaration of Intent to Study Law, which you usually don't do to your third year law school or something, maybe at the end of your first year, but you've been studying law for a while. Um, and you, it's a Extensive form you got to fill out any bad thing you've ever done, you know, all this kind of stuff You know, like did you ever have a MIP ticket or anything you have to disclose everything You know lawsuits you've been involved in how you settled and all this stuff And then you got to put your fingerprints as well. So all this goes into the state uh, the state bars database uh, And you basically have to do that and they have to approve you and you got to deal with any issues that bubble up because of that before you can sit for the bar exam. And Do you need you can... to be a citizen of Texas to be licensed in Texas or no? Uh, I don't think so. No, you don't okay. have to be a citizen. I guess you can be licensed in multiple states, right? 
can be licensed in multiple states, and there's various rules about how you can, you know, uh, make that happen. Some some states allow for reciprocity, which if you've been practicing in a certain state for some number of years, and it's you know, it's like seven years, five, seven years, then you can kind of wave in. At least it used to be that way. But otherwise, you can sit for the bar exam, you know, uh, in, in another state and take their bar exam. But, you know, the bar exam's horrible. You know, I'm just trying to see if there's a way, if there's a mechanism that requires you to be human. Like, is there something, like you have to have social security number or something to become a licensed lawyer? <clears throat> well, the whole system is set up. It's, it's just yet another registration thing that you're getting a license to do something, you know, that is kind of government sanctioned. Uh, so, it... I think the way, the, the appropriate way that these, uh, I 100% think we're going to be using these AI robot lawyers. I don't think we'll be using them in lieu of okay. people lawyers. I think that we'll have the robot lawyers doing most of all the, the heavy lifting and educating the, the human lawyer, you know, getting them up to speed quicker instead of them having to pay an army of associates. To, to, to do that type of work. Um, and then and then it would be the, the, the human person who's actually standing before the court or um, you know, that's the other thing. You, you know when you, when you take the oath um, and you, you know, swear into the, the bar, you, you swear in as an officer of the court as well. So you're really like a court liaison working for the for and on behalf of the court as much as you are for your client. You kind of you know, have that relationship, and uh, it's hard to see how a robot would be able to act in that capacity right. on behalf of the court. I think we're going to see interesting discussions around robot rights when robots become similar in skills to humans. I mean, there's been movies, the whole Blade Runner series is based on this idea. So that'll be, I don't know if that'll happen in the next couple of years, but I think that's probably something to deal with in the future. Yeah. Are you going to have some fun with something? I'm nothing but fun, Molly. What you got? All right. Let's talk about memes. So memes. We, Is it time we, for meme of the week? Yes. We each picked two memes that we liked. We're both meme fans. And what we're going to do is show you and tell you our two memes that we picked. And we're going to put them on Twitter and let everybody vote on which are the best memes of the week. Best is up to you. Do you want it to be funniest, most shocking like whatever you criteria you want for best so all right jimmy tell us about your first meme my first meme is the t-shirt meme for the bank run svb bank run 2023 why do you like this meme so uh when i was a younger attorney you know starting my practice in houston my wife and i ran these races all the time my We've both done marathons. My wife's done a, a bunch of marathons, you know, half marathons. We've all, all over the state of Texas, we've, we've run these races. And at every one of them, you get one of these t-shirts at okay. the end. We did, I did it with the, we did it with law firms. I mean, it was always a super fun, you know, community event to do. Uh, there's a great marathon here in uh, Houston, the Chevron Marathon, January of every year. 
which is which a lot of people actually set their personal records because it's very flat. So it's a little advertisement for the uh, Houston Marathon there. Uh, but anyway, as soon as I saw this thing, it's just oh my god! Those T-shirts, you know, which I used to have like falling out of my drawers, you know, at, at home and stuff. But seeing it, it was it was hilarious. So that would be my my first nomination for uh, All right. meme of the week. My first nomination is actually a Simpsons meme. Uh, where it's two-part, and the first part is SVB is the largest bank to fail since the 2008 crisis, and Homer Simpson, as insightful as he always is, says it's the largest bank to fail so far. So I find this one amusing because he, <laughs> I think it is fortuitous that we probably will see some additional bank closures coming soon. Maybe sooner than we think. You know, I think we talked about Credit Suisse is that these uh, the, the uh, default swaps are like through the roof, like going parabolic, you know, like we hope the XRP price does one day. All right, what's your next meme? So my next meme uh, requires, so <clears throat> um, it requires a little explanation maybe. I, I also, you know, bellyache laughed when I installed this one, but um, there's been this thing, everybody knows Jim Cramer on CNBC, and for the past, you know, several years, Mr. Kramer has not been as accurate as he used to be. Um, and it's become such a kind of a known thing or commented on thing that there was actually an ETF that filed, you know, a inverse Kramer fund, which substantially pissed off Mr. Kramer, but was kind of funny. But really, almost since that time, almost everything Jim Cramer has said or tweeted, the market has done the exact opposite. So, for example, um, uh, he picked three weeks before uh, Silicon Valley Bank went pop. Uh, he said it looked like the best investment, you know, it, it was in the banking sector, right? Everybody should go long in, in uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And three weeks later, it was taken over by the feds. So this meme in particular, uh, Mr. Kramer came out just a couple of few days ago and said, J.P. Morgan is a fortress. And then it's got one of the Key and Peele guys, you know, it's like sweat just pouring from his head because it's like, this is what J.P. Morgan's looking like right now because it's inverse Kramer. So maybe it'll be J.P. Morgan and not Credit Suisse. Who knows? Maybe. All right. And my last meme, which I'll show you here, is kind of tied back to this issue we saw with the banking system trying to blame all of these issues on crypto and it shows the, this guy playing the fed shooting the u.s banking system and then below saying why would crypto do this um, and it's sort of like a look over here not over here so i found that one very amusing so i'll put all of those on twitter i'll put the link in the description and before we wrap up jimmy any parting words of wisdom for people as they navigate the next week before we meet again next friday you know, I, I'm not even going to go to next week. I'm going to say relax this weekend. I expect next week may be even wilder than okay. this past week was. I think we have a lot to talk about next week as well. Try relax. Enjoy your family. Give the hugs. Share the love. And just chill because there's going to be a lot going on. All right, if you like this episode, please hit the like button, subscribe to follow us so that you can get notified on future episodes, and we will see you next week.